What a pleasant few days we've had, and it uh, just seems in a short period of time, getting to know a lot of you better and seeing many good qualities of this congregation. Just tonight and tomorrow night, all is left. About the time I'm getting to really know you, I'm out of here. But uh, the short time that, that we've had together has been very pleasant. And it's always enjoyable to see a number of people in the Birmingham area that have come out that I've known in years past. Several of you here tonight. Haven't seen in a while. Good to see you. Sometimes when we're reading, and in particular I think this is true of the Old Testament, we read things that kind of give us pause and make us scratch our heads a little bit. Why did God command that? We have a hard time understanding. It seems a little bizarre. It doesn't make sense to us. Those passages are favorites of modern atheists. You've probably heard of Richard Dawkins, who likes to use these texts and others are copycatting him, put the worst possible spin on them, and they do spin them, and then try to use that bad spin to attack the Bible and to slam Christianity. And these types of attacks are affecting people. They're affecting young people. I try to put out a lot of videos in Spanish. And it's amazing to me that most of the negative feedback I'm getting does not come from people in religious error. Most of what I'm getting is coming from atheists. And many of them will try to quote Old Testament passages to show how unjust they think God is. Of course, they don't realize how inconsistent they are. They say there's no moral standard, and yet they impose their moral standard in trying to criticize the Old Testament. But I think we need to analyze. We need to stop and talk about this because, believe me, our young people are going to hear this type of attack against the Bible and some of us who are maybe not quite as young as well. So I want us to ask ourselves the question tonight. Are all of God's commands in the Old Testament moral? Now, we only have time to make some brief summaries tonight. If you would like to go into this deeper, I don't do this much, but I will recommend a book. It's called, Is God a Moral Monster? Making Sense of the Old Testament God by a man named Paul Copan. And there's a lot of good points in that book. I want to divide this lesson into two parts. First of all, and this is the most important part, I think, some important principles we've got to have in mind when we're looking at Old Testament texts and especially those that are difficult. Then secondly, I want to just look at some of the specific texts, and I can't take all of them, but I want to look at a few representative texts that people sometimes throw out to try to discredit the Bible. Is God sexist? Look at a few verses along that line. Does God promote slavery? You'll hear that accusation sometimes. The Bible promotes slavery. Well, what about these texts in the Old Testament that command violence? We'll look at a few of them. Not deeply, but briefly. But let's get into the first part. I'm going to call it essential preliminaries. This, don't get nervous if I can spend a while here. This is the first half of the sermon. But uh, we've got to have certain principles in mind. First one. We believe on the basis of what we understand and accept the fact 
that there may be some things that we don't understand. There's a good Bible example about what I'm talking about, and that is the blind man in John chapter 9. You probably remember the story. A man born blind. Jesus put spit and made clay, anointed his eyes, and told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. He did, and he was healed. He could see. The amazing thing is that the religious leaders of his time, especially the Pharisees, almost looked upon him as if he'd done something wrong by receiving his vision from Christ. And they began to attack him. And their primary point was, this man, Jesus, is a sinner because he did this on the Sabbath day. He's violating the Sabbath. He's a bad guy. You can't be praising him for making you uh, see after you've been blind. So here comes the attack. Now, what did the blind man understand? He understood very little. He was blind. He would not have had access to Braille. Illiterate. He could have never understood all of those rabbinic interpretations about what was a violation of the Sabbath, what was not, why this would violate it, and what would not. He was pretty much, compared to his opponents, an unlettered man. But he did understand one thing. And you probably know the verse I'm thinking about. John chapter 9, 25. He's a sinner, he's a sinner, he's a sinner, said the Pharisees. Here's the answer. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And that's all he needed to know, wasn't it? Didn't have to understand all those rabbinic interpretations. I was blind. I can now see. Which had more weight in his mind? What he understood or what he did not understand? But what about us? Have we seen some marvelous things in the scriptures? If we're Christians, we know we have. No man ever spoke like Jesus Christ. Now that's what some, some guards said when they went to arrest Jesus in John seven forty six. But we can see today the words of Jesus and his inspired apostles have changed our Western civilization, have given us innumerable blessings, and yet we live in a, in a culture that not, does not want to give thanks to God. We know that there were witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. Paul confidently could say there were over 500, or around 500. They saw a dead man walking and talking and talked again with him. And John says, we touched him. And it looks like from the way that John's talking, 1 John 1, he's talking about we did touch him, saw him after his death, after his resurrection. We can know that. We can know that the, wit, that the testimony of the eyewitnesses rings true. Sometimes I just ask people, go to John chapter 19. We're not going to do it now. Read the description of the death of Christ. Read of his piercing with a spear, does it sound like fairy tales or does it sound like sincere testimony? And those of us who've read it know it rings true. We know as well that Jesus and his apostles believed in the Old Testament. We can also know 
that if we're going to follow Jesus and imitate him, we as well will accept the Old Testament. It's a package deal. If we want to have life, we believe on the basis of what we understand, and there may be some things we don't understand. I've mentioned earlier that my wife has lupus. Thankfully, she's doing very well now. And she has one of the best rheumatologists evidently in the world. Uh, We've been blessed to have him. And one time he was talking to me and he says, you know what I think is helping your wife so much is it's a drug called Plaquenil, which is an anti-malarial drug. And I said, well, how does it work? And here's a man who's one of the world-renowned uh, experts in rheumatology said, we don't really know that much why it works. We've got some ideas, but we're not sure how it works. We just know it's, with some people it seems to work. Don't know how it works, but it does. Well, are we going to stop taking that medication? I say we until I'm identifying myself and my wife. But is she going to stop taking that because she doesn't know exactly how it works? No. She knows it is helping. She's going to continue to take it. No, I can't explain every detail of the law of Moses to you, the whys and wherefores. And you can see why we're getting a few of the tricky ones in a minute. I can't explain it all. Whether this is the reason or that is the reason, I don't know. But one thing I know, and I'm speaking spiritually now, once I was blind and now I see. No man has ever, no man ever spoke as this man. So we believe. And we accept that there are some things we cannot understand. Well, let's go to another important, essential preliminary. And that is the horrible consequences of rejecting a moral standard that has served us for thousands of years. Some people today seem to think that they can just toss that standard out and suffer no Problems, no moral consequences. And uh, the thing is, if we cannot accept the standard of the Bible rightly applied, and it's been misapplied, who determines what's right and wrong? Now, I know that there are some world religions with some moral standards, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, and really a lot of the Eastern religions don't even claim to try to be a standard. But uh, the rule, I think, is true. The further away a culture gets from the teachings of Christ and from his standards, the worse things are going to be. How did rejecting God work in Nazi Germany? 15 million, perhaps, killed. How did working without a moral standard work in communist China? 50 million and up. Killed. What about Russia? 30 million and up killed. It's amazing to me how people who don't believe like to say, well, what about all these religious wars? Well, there have been a few that have been caused by false religions. But even those wars that have been promoted by false religions have been very puny in, in their evil compared to those who've been promoted by atheists and atheism. You just can't dump a moral code and expect things to just ride along smoothly. There are consequences. Well, sometimes people say, certainly that's not going to happen to us. But if you reject the Bible 
You're starting down that road. And sometimes the first generation of those people who respect a moral standard can kind of go along pretty well because they're retaining some of that moral standard that their parents may have had or their grandparents or even they may have absorbed from culture. But the problems, the moral problems, come with their children and their grandchildren. The further and further away you get from a moral standard, the closer you get to absolute disaster. The emptiness of life without God doesn't prove that there's a God. But it should make us think twice before out and out rejecting God and his word. And really, there's something in us that rebels against the concept that there are no moral standards. We have an intuition. Something is right and something is wrong. And I think it's reasonable to say that that intuition was probably placed in us by our Heavenly Father. Well, let's look at another preliminary. I think this is very important. When speaking of the law of Moses, it was never intended to be a representation of God's ideals. And the place where you can see that very clearly is Matthew 19, as well as some other texts. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 19, and we're going to put these passages up on the screen as well, if you'd rather read from the text there. This, of course, is the famous chapter dealing with divorce and remarriage. Matthew 19.3 And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So we've heard lessons on this, but just one point I want to emphasize. When the Pharisees asked Jesus about divorce and remarriage, Jesus went back to the ideal presented in the beginning. Uh, Genesis 2, 24. But what objection did the Jews give to that ideal? Verse 7. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? They're referring, of course, to Deuteronomy chapter 24, 1 through 4. Now here's the key verses coming. Pay good attention here. Matthew 19, verse 8. What about Moses and that certificate of divorce? Jesus said, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Why did the law of Moses allow certificate of divorce for wives? What does Jesus say? The hardness of of heart. The law was designed to take primitive, hard-hearted people who had strayed far from God's ideals given in Genesis and take them back incrementally, step by step, 
towards God's ideals. And when Christ comes, it's time again to go back and insist upon those ideals. So I think this principle, that the law of Moses dealt often with the hardness of heart of primitive people, it's necessary to understand many of the laws. They weren't to reflect God's ideals. God tolerated many things because of the hard-heartedness of the Jews that he did not absolutely like as an ideal. Divorce and remarriage is a good example. And there are other passages which teach the same thing. For example, in Hebrews chapter 8, the promise of the new covenant, a different kind of covenant. And as he goes through talking about one that will be written on the heart, he summarizes in verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to pass away. Never intended to be permanent. It was going to become obsolete and grow old. The law was designed to take primitive people towards God. An illustration. And this is an illustration based um, on some reality and some fiction. I've added a little bit of it. I'll explain to you what I'm talking about. I want you to think of a primitive culture such as New Guinea. They're just to the north of Australia. When the first Westerners tried to go in, and they were missionaries, to use that word, the tribes in that island were very violent. Whenever there was any disagreement between one of the tribes and another, if it was possible, they would just wipe out, completely kill the other tribe. And that's the way the problems were resolved. So as the first missionaries come in, that's what they're faced with. Tribes annihilating others and killing them. Well, we're going to try to move this culture towards more uh, orderly ex expressions. Uh, a missionary might have suggested something like this. this. is where I get into the fiction a little bit. But don't go off and kill the other tribe just because you have a disagreement. Let's, you get your best wrestler. You get your best wrestler. Go at it, wrestle. Whoever wins the wrestling match wins the dispute. Was well, that the ideal way to uh, resolve conflict, a wrestling match? It's not. But if, they had, if a missionary had gone in there and said, let's resolve this with English law, we're going to have a jury, and we're going to have a judge, and we're going to have a prosecutor and a defense attorney, how would that have worked? They would not have been ready for that. Maybe they could have been ready to get your best wrestler against yours. When you have primitive cultures, you have to take them step by step towards what they can accept. Perhaps that's one of the ideas that we see in Galatians chapter 3 and 25. There, Paul called the law a tutor. That's the King James Version. To bring us to Christ. At least in our modern sense of the word, and maybe this is a bit of the idea here. Tutors, what do they do? They give often remedial work to help children to come up to a level where they should be. What they teach, at least in this sense of the word, is remedial. 
not grade level. Can we say in a sense that the law of Moses was remedial? Not necessarily grade level. I think so. What Jesus said in Matthew 19 and in other passages, these types of points were made. Remember, when we read the law of Moses, we're reading something written to primitive people in primitive cultures to try to raise them up towards the point where they could accept God's ideals. So those are the three points to keep in mind. Now we're getting to the tough part of the lesson. I want to look at some of those uh, difficult texts that sometimes people will bring out to try to discredit the Bible. And we're going to talk primarily about uh, the role of women. We're going to talk about slavery and warfare and uh, violence. Now, as we look at these texts, I'm not going to answer all of your questions. I'm going to try to suggest some possibilities. And um, I think you're going to let you see that there's probably a lot that we don't know. And therefore, we'd better be careful in our judgment. And some of these difficulties must be understood in the, fa- in the light of the fact that sometimes even the Hebrew language is difficult. Uh, even for those who are scholarly and have dedicated their lives to studying it. And especially the Hebrew culture, how exactly would it have been uh, 1,400 years before Christ? If we understood both the language and the culture more perfectly, perhaps some of these difficulties would be less apparent than they are. But let's look at a few. First of all, is the Bible, in particular the law of Moses, sexist? Well, you know the answer. Is it, is it prejudiced against women? And the answer is no, it's not. Women in ancient times, and I'm speaking especially of the 1,400 years or so before Christ, were mistreated. But if you look at all of the laws that come through Moses, if you look at them closely, you realize that they are designed to protect women from that primitive treatment, not give them a hard time. In fact, when you look at the law of Moses and the Old Testament in general, you see many texts which point out the equality of men and women. I'll just show you a few quickly. Genesis 1.27, God created them male and female. You know, a plane of equality there? Male and female. They're both equal. That's the way that God created them. Honor just your father. Honor your father and your mother. If you can write down all those texts, by the time I got the screen off, you're fast. Tons of text. Honor your father and your mother. I think we... Uh, especially Proverbs right now that we're going through in West Harlem. I don't quote the Song of Solomon very much. I doubt you hear it quoted very much. But here's an interesting uh, phrase, Song of Solomon 6 and verse 3. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. Do you see male ownership of uh, women there? No. You see mutual ownership. And that's an interesting phrase, which implies the equality of the sexes according to the scriptures. Who were some of the most influential godly women in the Old Testament? 
we could have some of our younger Bible students here give us a list if you wanted. I would, won't give you the time to fill out a list. This were Bible class. I just said, let's take five minutes and write them down. But I think of Eve. I think of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah. These are heroes. Deborah, the queen of Sheba. Hold on. You can get up a long list. Doesn't look like that the Old Testament is disrespecting women. Many of them are examples and role models, even for us today. Well, what about those tough texts? If the Bible teaches that males and females are equal, in the, in, 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 then what about them? Here is a tough one. This is Numbers chapter 5. And if you want to look there, we'll refer briefly to this. But I'll explain to you what this is about. This is the trial of jealousy. And this is a bit of a head-scratcher. To determine adultery. If, a, if there was jealousy... If a man thought that his wife had been uh, unfaithful to him, they were to take water mixed with dust from the altar, and uh, she was to drink it. And if nothing happened, she was innocent. If she became sick, she was guilty. Now, when you first think of that, you think, whoa, that does sound, sound kind of weird. But you know, the more you think about it, I think there's some explanations. And especially, again, when you're taking into consideration the primitive nature of the culture. I guess we'd ask ourselves a couple of questions. What made it work? What made this test work? And really, was it, as to use the modern term, sexist? Uh, some have given various suggestions. Some of have said that maybe we're talking here of divine intervention. The more you look at it, the more you realize it was designed to protect the innocent woman from a husband who was probably uh, paranoid is not the right word, but is suspicious is a better word, of his wife. What's going on here? Divine intervention, maybe. I think more in terms that we have something here that seems like a psychological test, much like Solomon used. You remember when the baby was brought before him and the two women were discussing whose baby was the little child? And Solomon said, let's just divide the little baby in two. And of course, that revealed the true mother of the child, a psychological type of test. Same thing may be going on here. I doubt a little water mixed with dust, is going to make anybody sick. However, if a woman is guilty and she believes in this test, she's going to refuse to take it. However, if she's innocent, as is probably the case, because there's a lot of suspicious husbands out there with no reasons to, to suspect, this is going to help her. She's going to take this test gladly and get that jealous husband off of her back. The mere presence of the test was uh, a protection for her. Well, did it unfairly target women? If you look at the context, some of the verses before and after, I've listed a few there, you're dealing here with principles that involve both men and women. And I'm not so sure that a woman would not have had a right to give the same test to her husband. We make that point often. We read texts like Matthew 19, which talks about uh, men divorcing their wives. And we say, sure, that would apply as well 
to women who are considering divorcing their husbands. And Mark helps us out by pointing out the same thing. It does apply to women. Perhaps this is one of those texts that would, we could expect to be applied to both. But though it's a tough, tough in a way, especially looking at it with our 21st century perspective, I'm not going to throw out the Bible because there's some things about that test that I do not understand. Let's look at a few more tough tests. Does the Bible promote polygamy? Let's read this text, which some claim promotes polygamy. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved who is the firstborn. Verses 10 and on. Oh, I'm not ready for that yet. What, what is the point here? The point is to protect the son of the unloved wife. Now, is this promoting polygamy? This is one of a number of an if-then passages. And when the if part of the, of the passage is presented, it's not talking about God's ideals. That's true in the Deuteronomy 24 text about divorce and remarriage. If this happens, then. If you have two wives, never God's ideals, but with primitive people, you had bigamy and polygamy. Bigamy is two wives. Polygamy is more than, more than two wives. So what are you going to do? To have cut it off there would have been something they were not yet ready to handle. So, it must be regulated. Here it's regulated to protect the unloved wife and her offspring. Now, we're ready for Deuteronomy 21, 10 through 12. Some people say that this is a text which authorizes taking women, and somebody put it as, as, as war booty as uh, something that you gain from, from war. Let's read it, and then we'll talk briefly about it. When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord God gives them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife, and you bring her to your home, uh, she shall shave her head and pare her nails... And she should take off the clothes in which she was captured and she'll remain in your house and lament her father and mother for a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave since you have humiliated her. This does not reflect God's ideals. But stop and think about where these people would have been when receiving this commandment. What would have happened to most women in primitive war? They would have been raped. And the whole purpose of this text is to put a stop to that. No, they can't be raped. You have to marry them. And you can't marry them immediately you have to wait a month to marry them. And if you marry them, they will have all the rights of a married person. That's going to take away this 
greater cruelty that would have happened in primitive war. Does it reflect God's ideals? Of course not. But it's going to regulate those primitive people till they learn to be more orderly in their conduct. Well, take a few minutes to look at a few more. Does the Old Testament promote slavery? The answer is no. In fact, if you look at regulations about slavery in the Old Testament, you'll see that it's going to eventually end that system. Some have suggested that perhaps, especially when talking about Jewish slaves, that the word slave may not be the best description because that conjures up images in our minds of the Old South and conjures up images of, of the children of Israel in, in slavery in Egypt. Some have suggested maybe the idea of indentured servants, those who had a contract to work for a number of years, might be a little more accurate. Jacob, what did he have to do for Laban for seven years? He had to work seven years for his wife. Ended up 14, didn't it? Uh, so even this setup, which is very common in the ancient Near East, had to be regulated. And so we have laws regulating that practice. But look at a few texts which show the importance of respecting those individuals who may have been indentured servants or, if you prefer, slaves. Exodus 21.16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. If that type of principle had been followed in the pre-war Civil, uh, the pre-Civil War days, there would be no slavery. Because slavery depends upon stealing, kidnapping other people. Deuteronomy 23, 15 and 16. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. There were great privileges given especially to Jewish slaves in the Old Testament. And even those who were foreigners had plenty of rights, uh, even as they were dealt with. Uh, a number of texts require kind treatment to foreigners in the land, even foreign servants. And if you think of your Old Testament history... You can be reminded of how foreigners who came into the midst became sometimes slaves, but they were treated well. You think of Ruth, acquired by Boaz, and what did he eventually do? He eventually married her. It doesn't look like, uh, doesn't look like the type of treatment we sometimes consider when we think of slavery. Interesting in 1 Chronicles 2, 23 and 20, uh, 2, 34 and 35, that the descendant of Caleb... Shisha gave his daughter to a foreign servant. So there was a level of respect even for the foreigners there. Well, what about the New Testament? We're dealing primarily with the old, but I think we need to touch briefly on the new before we close. Does the New Testament promote slavery? The Romans had a full-blown slave system. Some were treated very harshly. Others, perhaps not so harshly. And the New Testament gave principles which eventually overturned slavery. Look.
look at a few. Jesus, in Luke 4, 4.19, came to free captives. Now, there's some, probably some double meaning here. Spiritually captive. Sure, that's it primarily. But that type of terminology certainly must have uh, made those who were slaves as Christians. Jesus came to free captives, maybe in several senses of the word. And Galatians chapter 3, 28, Colossians 3.11, similar text. Just point out, frankly, that in Christ Jesus, there is no distinction between slave and free man. That's the language of Colossians 3.11 in the New American Standard versions. Paul condemns slave trading. That's the New International Version, but other versions say kidnapping. That may be the idea. Kidnapping for the purpose of slavery. Romans chapter 18, verse 13, condemns Babylon for selling the bodies and souls of men. doesn't look like that we're promoting slavery here. We're giving principles that are going to cause its demise. However, the New Testament does not promote social revolution as a method of dealing with slavery. Rather, we see what we could call that incremental approach. Teaching love teaching a good heart, teaching respect for men. And those concepts do defeat slavery. It's interesting that even in our own history, and we think of the slavery in our own culture, who was more effective in dealing with it back in the 1800s? If you like your history, you may remember of a man named John Brown. And his idea was just out with a revolution, and he, of course, failed in his attempt. Someone who advocated a rather incremental approach, someone like Abraham Lincoln, had much more success. And eventually, the biblical principles won out. Uh, interesting enough, too, I've been reading, this is not on my notes, the last, uh, someone asked me to read the biography of Harriet Tubman. It's, I'm about two-thirds of the way through. Uh, she was uh, someone who rescued probably over around 100 slaves, and she gave instructions that resulted in many more who were able to escape slavery. But it's interesting how much faith, not always a, a, an accurate faith, but how much faith motivated her and others who fought against slavery in that, in that ugly period of time in our country. So the New Testament does not promote slavery. I'm going to go quickly through this next point. Ethnic cleansing in the Old Testament. God told in the children of Israel to destroy the children of Israel. But if you look at Genesis 15, 16, you've probably heard this passage quoted. God delayed the conquest of Canaan because the iniquity of the Amorite was not full. They were a decaying society morally, but God didn't think they were bad enough yet to have their land taken away from them. By the time it came for Joshua and the children of Israel to destroy the Canaanites, we're dealing with a horrible culture. All kinds of perversions, temple sex, bestiality, child sacrifice, extreme violence. They had a patroness of sex and war who reveled in gory violence. 
Sometimes societies reach such a depth of depravity that they need to be destroyed. And we're not talking ethnic cleansing here because some Canaanites, those who sought God and who sought protection, were spared. Rahab, the Gibeonites, and later on throughout Israel's history, those nations who would seek God, those foreigners who would seek God, were accepted among the Jewish people. Uh, Paul Copan had this to say about the conquest of Canaan. It was unique to Israel at a particular point in time and was not to be repeated in later history by Israel or by other nations. Without God's explicit commands, thus his morally sufficient reasons, attacking the Canaanites would not have been justified. Here's one of the toughest texts along this line. 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 3. I think sometimes this may be Richard Dawkins' favorite verse. But here, Saul is told to destroy the Amalekites, all of them, even animals, women, and children. This is the only text, I think, where children are specifically mentioned. The Amalekites were a morally depraved people who had attacked Israel when she was most vulnerable. What about this command? There are several suggestions that have been made, and I'm not 100% sure about any of these. And here again, as I mentioned in the beginning, if we knew more about the situation, the background, even the idiomatic use of the Hebrew language, it might help us. Is this simply a military operation against a military camp? Yes. There were cattle involved. But how many children are we talking about or, or adults? Not sure. Here's an idea. Destroy beast, men, women, children is an idiomatic expression to say destroy everything. And maybe there weren't even any children around. I'm not sure I could say that, but that's been suggested. Sometimes I think it's best to say this is one of those things I just don't understand completely. I might understand it better if I knew all that was involved. But I do think that we need to make the point that some societies can reach such a point of degradation Imagine placing a child in the arms of an idol to be burned. A society that tolerates that, does it really need to keep on or does it need to be destroyed completely? That's a point that we need to consider. And we can make the same type of point regarding Jericho, Ai, and other Canaanite cities. And obviously there we are talking about military garrisons. There's such many things we don't understand. Let's not judge the scriptures about that. So, the Midianites, a similar example. I'm not going to go through it all. You can look it up in Numbers 31 and ask me for more. I do not like to go over time, and I'm about to violate my principle. But just some concluding points here. All these texts must be interpreted in light of the fact that God was dealing with a primitive, violent culture. He was trying to keep the Jews separate from even worse cultures and move them towards his ideal well, somebody might think, you're just giving the Bible the benefit of the doubt. I almost hate to say that I'm giving the Bible anything. Uh, as much good as it is done for men, mankind throughout the year. But there's a sense, and I guess, when you could say that. But when you think of all the blessings it's brought, and really just a tiny, tiny, tiny percentages of the text have the type of difficulty that we're talking about tonight. How tragic it would be to allow such a tiny number 
of texts that make us scratch our head a little bit bring on the rejection of those great spiritual blessings that come to us through the Bible. Those who reject the Bible gradually find themselves sliding into shallow, empty lifestyles. And uh, they have no basis with which they can teach their children the difference between right and wrong. The consequences, you want to read the last part of chapter 1? You'll see what happens to culture that rejects God and his word. Let's focus on those things that give us faith and hope. And the only one thing that gives us hope in life is Jesus Christ. Do you have Jesus Christ in your life? Do you have the hope that he gives? Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, talks about being buried with Christ in baptism so that we can rise up to walk in newness of life. If you want to be buried with Christ in baptism tonight, to be raised up to walk in newness of life, let us help you. If you have any questions, you can already see I can't answer all of them, but I will do my best to get some people that are smarter than me probably to help. We'll do what we can to answer any questions you have. If we can help you with baptism, with questions, with prayers, please let us know, and we'll do what we can to help you. Let's stand and sing.